This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. We've all had the experience. In real life, people are largely courteous, avoid confrontation, and almost never descend into outright abuse. But you go online and the mildest disagreement can quickly spin out of control into extreme anger. And periodically, we read stories of people who seem to live normal lives, getting on fine with their neighbours, and yet in their online existence, that same person is issuing death threats or joining a pile-on against some vulnerable individual. So why is online behaviour so bad? And what effect is this having on democracy and public discourse? A lot of us probably shrug our shoulders and say, well, there's nothing you can do about it. That's the internet for you. But not everybody is saying that. David Babs is the project lead of a campaign organisation called Clean Up the Internet. And they're trying to raise awareness of some of the harms and introduce ideas for how things could be better. David's joined us today. Welcome to The Bunker. Thanks very much for inviting me on. David, as I said there in the introduction, I think a lot of people probably very reluctantly accept that the online world is just not always a very nice world and kind of think that nothing can be done about it. But you are trying to do something about it. So could you just say a little bit about Clean Up the Internet and some of the things that you're trying to do? Thank you. Yes. So so the, the starting point for Clean Up the Internet was a concern at this, what, what, what we saw as this huge degradation in the quality of online debate. And, you know, as it's got worse, um, the, the importance of online debate has, has, if anything, got more significant. It's a huge part of our contemporary po- political sphere. It's how people get involved in democratic debates. But we were seeing debates get derailed more and more by these kind of twin scourges, really, of, on the one hand, misinformation and disinformation, um, huge amounts of inaccurate, inflammatory information being, being pumped out there. And on the other hand, by abuse, by trolling, which in its mildest form, a kind of unpleasant distraction from, from actually having conversations and understanding issues better. But it's, at its worst was meaning that people were suffering really intolerable levels of threats and abuse, but also being forced out of those conversations altogether. So what we, what we started from was, was thinking like, well, surely it doesn't have to be like this. And looking to identify both drivers of the current current problems and then practical solutions. And the, the first thing that we've chosen to focus on is the question of anonymity and identity deception online as a phenomenon which is, is complicated. Anonymity has its upsides as well, and I'm sure we'll want to talk about them later. But it's clearly a, something which is associated both with disinformation, pretending to be people you're you're not really as a key tool of people peddling disinformation and a key factor in online abuse. Speak to anyone who's been on the receiving end of a lot of online abuse and they will tell you both that a significant amount of it always seems to come from people using anonymous accounts and secondly that 
abuse which comes from anonymous accounts has the potential to be even more frightening, even more threatening, because you, it's much harder to quantify. You don't know where that person's lurking in real life. That question of anonymity, I mean, I think immediately if you say it, it, for me, it throws up a sort of, if you like, a contradiction, because I think in some ways, you know, the internet is a sort of free space where people can decide to be who they want to be. And in some ways, that's quite liberating. You know, it's it's that, remember back in the 90s, that whole thing of second life, and people would sort of create an avatar, and they would, they would choose a different life. And that felt like, a way in which you know the future had arrived in a really exciting and sort of positive way but what you're talking about is is people sort of abusing the process of anonymity so what how do you sort of strike that balance i think you've just characterized the dilemma really well that anonymity is something which is clearly associated with a lot of problems it's it is something which is subject to a lot of misuse but it it is all something which i think Yes, historically was associated with a kind of um, the optimistic era of the internet, um, something that we probably feel more nostalgic for than we experience on a day-to-day basis. But anonymity is still right now something that can be important for, for, for underpinning freedom of expression. If you think, say, whistleblowers or dissidents or just people wanting to explore in a benign way an aspect of their identity that they don't feel ready to share in real life. And anonymity is a totally legitimate part of that. What we've been interested in is not a kind of knee-jerk ban on anonymity, which is often where this debate descends, but instead a much more nuanced question of what what would it look like to manage anonymity differently, to have a different approach to to, to identity online, which restricted the abuse while safeguarding the positive uses. Where we got to, having studied the differing behaviours of people using anonymity more legitimately, more, more benignly, and those misusing it, was there are differences in how those people behave, which mean if you design social media platforms differently, you could probably create a much kind of better settlement on anonymity. So key, key principles that that would involve would be, firstly, just giving everyone the option of verifying their identity and, and making it transparent to other users, whether someone has chosen to verify their identity or not and that obviously would just give you an extra data point to judge whether if someone's choosing to conceal their identity is there a kind of legit reason for that or does it lead you to take take what they're saying with a bit of a pinch of salt secondly we think that a, a bit a big kind of distinguishing feature between benign anonymity and um, misuse of anonymity is often it's a question of consent really that what people who are misusing anonymity for abusive purposes are often sending unsolicited communication to people they don't know. And that therefore, if you also give users more control over how they interact with people who've chosen to conceal their identities, um, basically give them options to filter out communication or limit interaction from users who, who haven't verified their identity, that would instantly give those who wish to avoid kind of higher risk interactions, um, much much more say in whether or not they hear from those kind of users. Do you see, from your sort of studies, for example, I mean, you mentioned the, the point about sort of spreading of conspiracy theories. Is it, do you th- see the problem? Is it individuals, real humans, who are behaving online anonymously and behaving in a way that, that is highly irresponsible, whether it's being abusive or spreading conspiracy theories, or is it actually sort of 
bots and other types of sort of automated systems who are creating fake people. So I suppose it's this distinction between a real person not telling you who they are and an entirely fake person who's been invented by either a, a, another individual or a, or, or a machine. Yes. Yeah, so I think one of the reasons we identified anonymity as an important factor to, to look at and consider solutions to is it enables problematic behavior online in a few different ways, including really all the ways you've just listed. So one of the well-researched um, ways in which anonymity has a negative impact or an in- impact which can and often is very negative is through what, what's often called by psychologists as the, the, the online disinhibition effect. So basically this idea that if you're, if you're concealing your identity as a regular human being, you feel liberated to behave in ways you wouldn't feel comfortable behaving if, if you knew that people could see who you were. And sadly, um, online that often means behaving in abusive, threatening ways or ways which involve sharing content you know to be false. So there's that kind of role for anonymity. There is also another role for anonymity, though, which is that um, for those seeking to deliberately spread disinformation as part of some kind of coordinated effort, concealing your identity or pretending to be someone other than who you really are, for example, pretending that you are a mother of three from Brentwood who voted Remain but now wants to get Brexit done, when really you're not from Britain at all, um, but trying to stir things up. Again, the concealing your identity can, can, can enable that. Now, that kind of latter category, kind of con- concealed identity in order to deceive, can be both real humans or more automated systems. I think overall, there's a fair amount of evidence that pure bots have diminished in significance on on platforms like Twitter. They have developed some means of detecting those, but obviously what they might not be detecting are the most sophisticated ones that no one else is detecting. It's hard to be completely confident that that they're not not present. But I think what you're seeing far more now are kind of semi-automated but deceptive accounts and deceptive accounts run by real people, but doing so from behind a cloak of anonymity and identity deception to spread misinformation. Just sort of saying for a moment that you you and your, your campaign group were successful in generating some kind of change. Let's say that Twitter allowed all users a very straightforward and, and sort of reasonably functional process to verify yourself. How do you think that would affect the ability of, you know, let's say it's someone in in the context of the current US election who's got information about some uh, illegal act perpetrated by the Trump uh, campaign and they want to surface that. How would that be different in in the sort of world that that you're, you know, you're you're proposing or you think we should move towards? Well, it wouldn't be all that different. That person's account would... Be visible. It would be transparent to every other user that that person had chosen not to reveal their name and was using a pseudonym or an anonymous handle, and that would mean that that person 
had certain limitations based on how they could interact directly with other people. But what it wouldn't mean is that they were any less able to join the platform or disseminate that information or for people to choose to engage with that information and spread it further. And I think what you'd see in practice with that kind of information is a healthy, is a, is a kind of healthy interrogation of the information itself and the choice that that person has made not, not to reveal their identity. But if the information itself was solid and the reasons for that person not revealing their identity were reasonable ones, it, it shouldn't greatly restrict the spread of that information. One of the things that I wonder about is if, if you make, for example, you know, Twitter or Facebook into just more courteous and more respectful forums where people are much less likely to behave in this kind of way, partly possibly because they, they can't, um, you know, they can't hide who they are, or if they do hide who they are, it makes them, it makes them unusual. Uh, isn't there a risk that you would just drive a lot of traffic to some of these alternatives? I mean, I, I'm, I've, I've heard of there's something called Parler, isn't there, which is a sort of seems to be a kind of right-wing Facebook or right-wing Twitter. And then I think there's something called Gab as well. Yeah. I mean, could, could you say a little bit about those, those sort of alternative platforms? And, and what's your opinion about whether or not, if, if the sort of mainstream platforms were much more anchored in the mainstream, whether or not you'd just see this proliferation on the fringes? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that there is already an interaction between those fringe platforms and the mainstream platforms. And actually, it's one which often thrives off the lack of verification, the ease with which people can create false identities. In that, one of the ways in which those, say, Gab and Twitter interact is if somebody gets kicked off Twitter, finally, uh, because it, you know, that, that, that can happen, it doesn't, some would argue it doesn't happen enough, or, you know, extreme use of racial slurs, etc. They are able to coordinate with their followers, their, their contacts on a platform like Gab, to let them know that they've created a new username, often one similar to their old one, and they can quickly reacquire all those followers again and, and, and continue what they're doing, which is obviously something which our verification proposals would make harder, make it more difficult for someone to, to, to simply come back with a, different, with a slightly different username. I think, though, more broadly, unpleasant behaviour on these more niche platforms is unpleasant and, you know, needs tackling when it spills over into the real world particularly. It is qualitatively different to that kind of behaviour on Twitter or on Facebook because when, that, when those behaviours happen on Facebook or on Twitter, they have the impact of excluding a lot of people from the public sphere, something like Twitter or Facebook, where you have journalists, you have politicians, you have mainstream discussions about the political direction of the country. If you have, as you currently have, um, a high prevalence of misogynistic, racist abuse, threats, etc., that has a real impact on the inclusivity of those debates. So I think it does make sense for there to be higher standards applied to these big platforms because they are part of the public sphere and therefore they need to be accessible places for everyone, not places where groups that are already underrepresented are subjected to barrages of abuse and too often in practice either 
moderate what they say and what opinions they express or get bullied off the platforms altogether. I think we've talked quite a lot about, if you like, the what, the, the sort of what, what you think would be a beneficial change. Uh, we should probably talk about the how, because ultimately, I think what you're talking about is something that I imagine requires either some kind of regulation or certainly a, a huge amount of kind of, of effective pressure being brought to bear on the social media platform. So what, what, could you talk to us a bit about how you think these changes might come about? I don't think anything that we are suggesting requires regulation in the sense that it would be perfectly possible for the platforms to do it voluntarily. However, notwithstanding the fact that they could do it voluntarily, um, I think our view would be that platforms have had quite a long time to address the ways in which their current design flaws enable and encourage negative behaviours and and d- have degraded the, the discourse in the public sphere over time. Um, and so we do think that probably the best way to, to make progress on this is for there to be some regulation. And what the way, the way we would locate this is that um, at the moment, uh, all the decisions about how platforms are designed, how they operate, and indeed how they are moderated, um, what content is allowed to stay or to be removed, are taken by foreign-owned corporations headquartered largely in America. And they are taken with the objectives of minimizing their overheads and maximizing their advertising revenue. And we think it's time that uh, other more, more social obligations um, are introduced alongside those. So that if, if you want to run a huge platform and, and uh, profit from its status as part of a public sphere, it's totally legitimate for um, a democratically elected government to start imposing some obligations on you as to how you run it. So in the case of anonymity, which I think is just one example of the kind of risk factor we think good regulation could be looking at, we, wouldn't, we, we don't think government should be telling platforms exactly how they, how they should do it, what I think good regulation should be doing is A, expecting platforms to demonstrate that they're doing something, that this is a risk factor, it's something that's associated with all kinds of really negative behaviour. So it should be an objective of their design choices, of their the way they manage their, popu- their platform to kind of mitigate these problems. And secondly, regulation could impose greater transparency on the platform so that we can all assess what the effectiveness of those measures are and, and you know, see, see how they're getting on. Because at the moment, we have this kind of dual problem of both platforms not doing enough to improve the way, the, the way they operate. And then they mark their own homework. They tell, tell us what they've done and whether it's worked or not. And it's on very hard for us to see what, what good it's actually done. I can imagine that most of the time, you know, what, even for people who are not particularly fond of the current government, that you know, tackling online harm is is something that is probably has cross party appeal, but when it extends to undermining your ability to run sophisticated online election campaigns that you know target particular voters and all the rest of it, uh, you, you can imagine at that point the certain parties' enthusiasm for the project wanes a little. Yeah. So, what's your sense of the political reception of these ideas? And the likelihood of their actually, you know, coming into some kind of law. 
very, a few things pulling the government in quite different directions at the moment, which which makes it quite an important area for civil society groups to be campaigning. On the one hand, like like you just alluded to, there are there, there are those within at the heart of government who are um, instinctively very pro-tech companies and um, certainly didn't get into politics with the idea of extending regulation to new sectors of the economy. On the other hand, MPs um, of all parties are victims in all this, as well as legislators. They, they're a group of people um, who are particularly on the receiving ends of, of, of a lot of online abuse. Um, and that's something that has really, really struck me when when talking to MPs about this this campaign that um, it doesn't it's not too hard to convince them that anonymity is an issue that we should look at constructive ways of of tackling um, because they're on the receiving end of a lot of um, abuse from 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 anonymous accounts and they see the ways that that can um, degrade political debates that they want to be taking part in. And what I think that's meant in practice, these different impulses pulling pulling the government in different directions, is we had quite a slow process since initial proposals were published over a year ago now. At times, they it's appeared that they are being severely watered down. At other times, there's been quite a vociferous backbench demand for the price to be picked up and the and the legislation to be to be strengthened. Um, backbench demand from both from, from MPs of all parties. And I think there's still quite a lot up for grabs, that means. Um, there, there definitely is within the current online harms agenda a kernel of some good ideas to start to introduce accountability to, 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 these, to, to these foreign companies. One of the ways I think it might be helpful to, to consider this is that if you want to build a space in, you know, in the physical world, you are, everyone accepts that you're subject to various rules and regulations beyond simply but, but, but don't stop you from building the building in the way that you design it, but you for you making design choices or from you running it in the way that you want to run it but mean that you are subject to some some broader broader expectations whether that's planning regulations or health and safety fire safety regulations that mean that 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 space should, is expected to be safe and the, the bigger the scale on which you're operating physical premises the the more significant those social obligations are we've been doing that with physical buildings since since the 19 since the the early um 20th century um and you know online spaces are now at a scale where we need to start thinking about what an equivalent of that would look like that's not something that uh there's any reason why a kind of a, a sensible moderate conservative mp wouldn't wouldn't get on board with david i i think what you've just said there is is a great way of sort of characterizing effectively you know the what was at one point a sort of pioneering technology the internet which has now become at the center of everybody's lives and perhaps it it needs to be treated a bit like building a house or or you know digging up a new road or something david we've come to the end of our time today i want to thank you very much for joining us uh, for anybody who's interested in this work cleanuptheinternet.org.uk is the website and you'll find a lot of information there about research and campaigns and so on. So it just remains for me to thank David for coming to the bunker and thank the listeners. Thanks very much. There's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with the main panel show on Wednesdays. So do subscribe and you won't miss a single one. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.